Previously on Flying the Line. After the armistice ending the Great War was signed, a large cohort of Army Air Force pilots were out of jobs. This was undoubtedly a boom to the early commercial aviation industry. As entrepreneurs and shrewd businessmen started to build up a network of airlines, the issues and conflicts that inevitably arise from such business booms also began to emerge. To address this, Dave Banke, a no-name pilot flying for United Airlines, rose to the occasion and forged a powerhouse of a labor union, which rivaled in influence and power with the large industries of the 1930s. However, as tensions in Asia and Europe increased, so did ALPA's risk of losing every gain that ALPA had achieved in the first years of its existence. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 11, Wartime, Part 1. The key to understanding what happened to the airline piloting profession during World War II lies in recognizing how much wartime growth the aviation industry experienced. In commercial aviation's infancy, pilots could expect to know every other pilot working for his own airline, and a great many working for others as well. However, almost overnight, aviation became a global business with an expansion in personnel to match. Pilots could no longer expect to know their contemporaries, even at the same domicile, unless they happened to attend school together. The number of pilots working for airline military contract operations doubled and then quadrupled. The far-flung overwater operations of airline pilots who had never before been out of sight of land was a harbinger of the things to come in the post-war world. The technological innovation that comes as a result of armed conflict undoubtedly spurred aviation's development in World War I. But that paled in comparison to how World War II pushed it into high gear. Fueled by unlimited government spending, aircraft designers and manufacturers burst brilliantly into the struggle against the Axis powers of Germany and Japan. The advances in aircraft, engines, electronic communication, and weather forecasting were phenomenal. Even turbine-powered aircraft, considered a technical stunt with only remote possibilities in the 1930s, had by the end of the war become an operational fact of life. For ALPA, the biggest problem posed by wartime was one of adapting. As part of the labor movement, ALPA was in an awkward position. Labor, although a crucial commodity, clearly took a back seat to the managerial and industrial skills necessary for America's becoming, in the words of FDR, the arsenal of democracy. The titans of industry and commerce, who had pretty much been out of power during the early New Deal years, returned triumphantly to Washington after war clouds began forming on the Asian and European horizons, and the New Deal made its peace with them. For the labor movement as a whole, the question was one of maintaining its position 
rather than making new gains. The union leader who ordered his workers to strike for a pay raise at a time when young men were dying in foxholes and on a hundred battlefields around the world risked not only a crackdown by the combined power of government and industry, but repudiation by both the public and his rank-and-file members. Alba entered the post-1938 period in excellent shape. As the possibility of war increased, the military services began denying pilot requests for release from active duty, thus cutting off the supply of labor on which the airlines had always depended. This worked to Alpa's advantage as the contract process went forward. The military further tightened the supply of pilots by allowing junior airline pilots with a hankering for a military career to return to active duty. The association newsletter began carrying an ever-lengthening list of active airline pilots killed in crashes while serving with the reserves. The shortage of pilots was becoming so severe by late 1938 that FDR created the Civilian Pilot Training Program to train 20,000 pilots. Alpa worried about this kind of competition, but Banky couldn't really try to stop the program, for it was clearly in the national interest to have adequate manpower in the nation's cockpits if war were to come. In terms of membership, Alpa was growing through all of this. An overwhelming majority of working airline pilots paid dues, with a percentage of non-members dropping every year. Back in 1932, the 19 delegates who assembled in Chicago for the convention represented just 344 dues-paying members. By 1940, 70 delegates represented 1,400 airline pilots, nearly 90% of the total number of pilots working. At the end of World War II, ALPA's dues-paying membership had increased to 5,730 or over 90% of all airline pilots. As early as 1939, the few pilots who were not ALPA members were primarily either junior co-pilots not yet eligible, or a handful of senior holdouts, many of whom were also ineligible for membership because they had fought some ALPA policy over the years, or, more commonly, because they had gotten severely behind in paying dues. For most new hires, it was considered a sign of acceptance when the veterans asked them to fill out an ALPA application form. Junior pilots who refused to join were rare. The old-timers who had put their necks on the line for ALPA weren't about to let baby-faced newcomers have a free ride. Most junior pilots understood this and could also see other advantages of belonging to ALPA as well. The senior holdouts were a tiny minority and Banky didn't worry about them. Of course, if they got in trouble, he wouldn't do anything for them either. By 1938, when ALPA first began representing pilots with grievances, that counted for a lot, as a group of senior holdouts at United Airlines was about to discover. This event became known as the Purge of 39. After it was over, most pilots knew that ALPA was worth the dues, even back dues if it came to that. The genesis of the purge at United was an accident at Point Reyes, California, in February of 1938, 
the pilot in command of a flight from Medford, Oregon to Oakland, misinterpreted signals from the Point Reyes low frequency range, went in the wrong direction, ran out of gas over the ocean, and crashed at sea. Everyone on board died except for a passenger and the captain, Charles Steed. Steed was not much of an instrument pilot. He had a lot of company in this respect, particularly among older pilots. But unlike so many others, he also had the questionable good fortune of surviving his error. He had no alternative but to face a federal investigation, which, partly owing to the new pressure generated by the Air Safety Board, or the ASB, found that he was incompetent and had used bad judgment. For United's higher brass, the Point Reyes crash was the last straw. Pat Patterson had always treated his pilots rather gingerly, whether they were ALPA or non-ALPA. As the new fangled instrument flying developed in the 1930s, many old-timers either chose to ignore it or did the bare minimum to comply with the new rules without getting fired. At United, about a dozen such pilots were targeted for dismissal in the wake of the Point Reyes crash as an example to other reluctant instrument flyers. Many old-timers suspected that United wanted to get rid of them because of their high salaries, rather than because of their alleged inability to fly instruments. The company had already proved that it was no respecter of legendary names when Jack Knight, the hero of the first transcontinental night airmail flight in 1921, got kicked upstairs to a meaningless and temporary executive position in 1937. That was a clear indication to older line pilots that they had better stay close to ALPA for self-preservation. Still, there were a few who adamantly refused to join. They were about to learn the full measure of their anti-union folly, for the only qualification an older pilot needed for inclusion on the purge list was that he not be an ALPA member. Among the victims of this purge were some exceptional pilots, like Warner Bunge, United convened pilot disposition boards to get rid of older guys who didn't care to learn instrument flying. Bunge, a charter member of ALPA and president of a local council, had learned so-called blind flying while in the military. But since Bunge was a union leader, he was called before the board, and when asked if he would strike if called to, he said he would. With enough pilots vowing to support ALPA, United recognized the union, but Bunge later resigned from the association after things settled. Without the protection of a union, and in the wake of the Point Reyes crash, Bunge and several other pilots at his base in Oakland were asked to leave the airline with six months base pay. Other pilots, who lacked instrument flying skills or the desire to use them, but were ALPA members, were left alone. When Bunge refused to resign, he was given a flight check to assess his skills, but he was fired nonetheless. Although ALPA was quiet during World War II, it was not altogether inactive. Dave Bankey had reached an achievement plateau in 1938, and in the months of peace remaining, he devoted himself to completing employment agreements, one by one, 
with each airline. Almost simultaneously, with the completion of the last contract, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and Dave Bankey faced pressure to relax standards for pilot working conditions because of the wartime emergency. The airlines were going to war, and they expected the nation's airline pilots to salute smartly and toe the line. In the beginning, this was not an altogether unsatisfactory idea to Banky. As we heard in the last chapter, he had a lifelong love affair with the military that left him predisposed towards being amenable to some kind of militarization of airline pilots in time of war. As far back as 1932, Banky had persuaded his fellow ALPA members to support something called the Legion of the Air, designed primarily to give airline pilots a quasi-military status. The executive board, a group of Chicago-area pilots he assembled, temporarily for advice, formally petitioned the Democratic Party's National Convention in 1932 to adopt a platform plank that would give all active airline pilots reserve commissions, or, failing that, to support a new organization of airline pilots that would be available for call-up in a time of national emergency. In 1934, the second ALPA convention voted unanimously that recognition be given to ALPA by the government as a reserve air unit, due to the fact that our members are in continuous training in the most advanced phases of flying, especially night and instrument, and bad weather flying. Over the years, a number of bills were introduced in Congress to give airline pilots reserve military status, but without exception, they failed to pass. As late as June 1939, Banky was still pushing this idea, calling airline pilots the Minutemen of Air Defense. There is no doubt, however, that a great many airline pilots were leery of the military. Most of them had been soldiers at one time or another, and like most veterans, much preferred civilian life. Banky was clearly more enthusiastic than the average airline pilot, but he persuaded them to back his military idea as politically expedient. In that highly patriotic era, it was crucial for ALPA to present a public service image. In any case, Banky had more pressing problems to contend with than the rather improbable one that the masses of airline pilots would be drafted as buck privates, handed rifles, and sent off to the trenches. Even with World War II looming, Banky's strongest efforts were not in military preparedness, but in contract negotiations. ALPA had its own business to attend to in Kansas City, Dallas, and New York. TWA signed ALPA's second contract on July 18, 1939, having been narrowly nosed out for first by American. While British and French armies crumbled on the continent of Europe, Dave Banky continued knocking down contracts. Penn Central Airlines, which later merged with United in 1961, became the fourth company to sign an ALPA contract. In the midst of the contract's successes, a purely political battle erupted in Washington, one that ALPA would eventually lose. A prelude to Banky's decline, it heralded the erosion of his political base in Washington. It began in a curious way, 
with the failure of what had been, in its time, one of ALPA's greatest successes, the Air Safety Board. The creation of the independent ASB was the political high-water mark for ALPA in the Banky era. He had beaten the Air Transport Association on this one. The ATA had fought against the ASB all the way. But despite the initial enthusiasm for it, and the fact that Banky's idea of an independent safety board to investigate accidents was so obviously in the public interest, the ASB fell victim to the war years and was not revived until 1966 with the creation of the National Transportation Safety Board. The two factors primarily responsible for ASB's demise were the new whip held by the operators over the Roosevelt administration because of the wartime buildup and the personality of Thomas Hardin, former ALPA first vice president and the dominant member of the Air Safety Board. And while investigations were often quick to find pilot error as an accident's cause, what if it was company error, or more likely, an error in the government-run facilities? The risk of this happening was too great for a government preparing for war, and Roosevelt abolished the safety board in 1940 by presidential order. Banky couldn't believe that FDR, the man who had so often supported policies favorable to ALPA in the past, would let the cherished ASB slip away. Banky had made safety the cornerstone of ALPA's public relations policy, emblazoning the motto Schedule with Safety on ALPA's letterhead. He had manipulated the ASB law so that one of its three members would have to be an active airline pilot and had personally selected Tom Harden to be the airline pilot member. But that was also a problem, as Harden was not well-liked in Washington. Harden was a Texan who had been a soldier, a barnstormer, a local aviation entrepreneur, and a 10,000-hour American Airways, and later American Airlines, pilot. Like Banky, he had been involved in General Pershing's expedition into Mexico after Pancho Villa in 1916. He then served for seven years on active duty as a commissioned aviator before resigning to form his own airline, which he headquartered in Fort Worth, and christened Texas Air Transport. He won the first Texas Air Mail contract in 1927, and in 1929 sold out to Aviation Corporation of America in a deal that left him financially secure. In 1930, apparently bored with the life of idle wealth, or broke because of the stock market crash, he went to work for American, first as an executive, and subsequently as a line pilot. Hardin took an active interest in ALPA's affairs almost from the beginning, and Banky considered him an asset to ALPA because of his previous success in management. During the 1930s, Hardin held practically every ALPA office, finally winding up as first vice president, second only to Banky. In June of 1938, during the closing days of the congressional session, Harding led the first Lobby to Save Lives in its effort to save the independent ASB in the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938 
from a last-minute revision proposed by the Air Transport Association. ATA had tried to dilute the airline pilot member's authority by weakening the ASB's mandate, and when that failed, to substitute a one-man safety director in lieu of a multi-member ASB. The newspapers had learned of this proposed revision in the law and had given the lobby to save lives a fair amount of publicity. ALBA had won the battle, and the future of ASB seemed secure. Had it not been for the war in Europe, ATA would probably never have been able to destroy the ASB. The problem was that FDR needed the support of the executives who had previously opposed him during the fight for the New Deal. In order to win them to his service in wartime, there had to be a quid pro quo, a token of good faith. Throughout every area of governmental authority, the weakening of New Deal reforms was apparent as business executives flooded executive branch posts in Washington and began taking the measure of their old opponents, particularly the labor union leaders. Thus, a softening of the New Deal's pro-labor policies was an early and obvious casualty of the wartime situation. For air transport management, nullification of the costly ASB idea was a primary target. FDR understood the give-and-take nature of the political game and killed the ASB. Banky was stunned at the elimination in FDR's reorganization plan number four when it was announced in April of 1940. During the months ASB had been in existence, it had done an excellent job. The number of pure pilot error findings had dropped sharply, and the airlines had to spend a large amount of money complying with ASB's safety recommendations. Airline safety began to improve dramatically. By June 1939, after the completion of the first full season of cold weather operations, traditionally the most dangerous time, the accident rate was down sharply, with only a single fatal accident. FDR's proposed reorganization would transfer ASB's investigatory function, together with all of its personnel, to a newly restructured Civil Aeronautics Board, or the CAB. Banky learned about the abolition of ASB like everybody else, by reading it in the newspapers. Fiercely angry at what he considered a betrayal by FDR, Banky again resolved to fight. Next time on Flying the Line. One battle is lost, but more than foreign threats seek to wreak havoc on the welfare of airline pilots as managements attempt to use patriotism to reverse the gains of labor. Thank you for listening. This has been part one of chapter 11 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production Copyright Alpa 2020. All rights reserved.